Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I'm Mai Ventran, a postdoctoral researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies here in Copenhagen. And today it is my pleasure to welcome my colleague Duncan Marcargo, director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and a professor of political science at the University of Copenhagen. Duncan, welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast. Great to be here. So as many of our listeners will know, Malaysia held its 15th general election on the 19th of November 2022. The election was called at pretty short notice before the end of the last government's term and resulted in a new ruling coalition headed by veteran politician and opposition leader Anwar Ibrahim. Duncan traveled to Malaysia for the election and was there for a couple of weeks. So, Duncan, what took you to Malaysia and what did you hope to learn by spending time there during the election campaign? Yeah, I thought this was a great chance actually to get a bit of a comparative perspective. I teach a course here which is called Contentious Electoral Politics in Southeast Asia and we typically in that course focus on uh, four cases which are Thailand, Myanmar, the Philippines and Indonesia. So I haven't been teaching about Malaysia lately. I've been visiting Malaysia for shock horror, you know, more than 30 years now, and never really delved into it very deeply, but I did have three Malaysians do PhDs under my supervision at Leeds. So it's a place that I've been passing through, but never really immersing myself in properly. There was a nice window of opportunity. My course had finished and the election came up at very short notice. I have a research grant to work on topics related to contentious electoral politics in Southeast Asia. And I thought to get a comparative perspective, it would be really great just to seize the moment and go there, which is what I was able to do. And let me say, I'm not claiming to represent anybody. I'm not claiming to be an expert on Malaysia. I was an official observer. Uh, This is something I was doing really to enrich my own knowledge and maybe to feedback some stuff for my students and also look possibly for some comparative angles that I might write something about in the future. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. So what was this election all about and what were the issues at stake? Can you share with us? Yeah, that's really the question that many of us were asking. A lot of the Malaysian colleagues and friends and people that I met were also a little bit puzzled by the election on one level for a variety of reasons. First of all, there were an awful lot of parties and an awful lot of coalitions involved. So Malaysia's not the only country in the world with an alphabet soup of initials relating to political parties, but I think this was a particularly compelling one. So in a nutshell, we had... BN Barisan Nasional, who were the long-standing uh, ruling coalition in Malaysia, who sort of controlled the country's politics for most of its first 60 years after independence, led by UMNO, the, the Malay-dominated party. Then you had two other coalitions. Looming large, of course, is Pakatan Harapan, led by Anwar, who's now become the prime minister. They had positioned themselves for a long time as the reformists, as the people who were against UMNO and who wanted to challenge what they saw as an overly comfortable 
collection of parties who have been really working on their own behalf and had, of course, been associated with structural corruption, epitomised by the very problematic premiership of the former Prime Minister Najib Razak, who's now currently in jail. So PH was supposed to represent the reformists against the old guard Barisan National. Unfortunately, it's not quite that simple for a variety of reasons, one of which being that then you've got another big coalition, which is PN, or Perekatan National. PN was kind of unknown-light. They were people who had broken away from the Pakistan Harapan coalition, which took power in 2018. So Pakistan Harapan had won in 2018 and had made former Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamad, then 93 years old, the Prime Minister for a second round, which was a fairly extraordinary turn of events. But this fairly extraordinary turn of events rather soon unraveled because of internal contestation amongst that coalition. So the biggest outcome of that internal contestation was the emergence of this PN grouping, which had been in power then for a period after Mahathir was toppled in 2020, only itself to be replaced by a new coalition in which the old Barisan National played the leading role. So we end up with three coalitions, and Prakitan National had a number of players in it. Barisatu, which was the legacy party of Mahathir and the people who'd been aligned with Pakistan Harapan in 2018, and also passed the Islamic party, which has long dominated politics in some of the Malay heartlands. So you actually had three coalitions. Some of the members of those coalitions had been previously aligned with different members of those coalitions. And most of the people in all three coalitions had at some point been in UMNO, including Anwar himself. So to a large extent, the other two coalitions were breakaways from Barisan National of the past. And if you're confused, that's not entirely surprising because I think a lot of Malaysian voters were also confused. I was confused and many people that I met were confused not just about all the different parties and coalitions, but what, what they really represented politically. And to compound things, the aforementioned Mahathir Mohamed, who became Prime Minister after the 2018 general election, generally known in Malaysia as GE14, because they're counting the elections from the first one, he formed his own coalition called GTA, which was led by his party, Pajuang. So we actually had four rival coalitions. Unfortunately, Pajuang didn't get any seats, and so has rather faded into oblivion, but they were another complicating factor. So you had four coalitions each of them headed by rather elderly men who had previously been in UMNO at some point or other in the not-too-distant past. So there we have it. What was actually at stake? We thought something was at stake about a choice between a more democratic and reformist orientation and the old politics associated with UMNO, but actually that wasn't as clear-cut as it seemed. Yeah, so obviously there are many things for us to unpack here. But first of all, I wanted to ask about your view in terms of the integrity of the election itself. So previous elections in Malaysia had the reputation of being manipulated in favor of the traditional ruling coalition BN, the Barisan Nasional, which had governed the country until 2018. How about this election? Based on your observation, how competitive or free and fair was it? 
Well, the election was pretty competitive, but we always have to bear in mind there was a lot of structural inequity in the Malaysian voting system, particularly in terms of the allocation of seats. Because essentially, to cut a long story short, rural areas and Malay heartland states are overrepresented in terms of the numbers of voters with the MPs that they're able to command. So urban areas, which tend to be strongholds of PH and what we used to think of as the opposition, they're very underrepresented numerically in terms of the number of seats that they're able to contest. And so that's a structural problem, which ought to have greatly advantaged Barisan Nasional. But despite that advantage, and just to talk a little bit about the results, Barisan Nasional in total, that's not just UMNO, but it's ally parties, ended up with just 30 seats. Whereas you know, the other coalitions were a great deal stronger, PH ended up with 82 and BN ended up with 73 seats. So despite what you would have thought were very substantial structural disadvantages that PH and indeed PN were labouring under, they didn't help Barisan National nearly as much as they did in the past. So even in these Malay heartlands where they used to be able to count on having a kind of automatic built-in advantage reflected in that structural inequity of the what's really a system of long-standing malapportionment of seats didn't help them that much this time. Another interesting issue this time is the lowering of the voting age in Malaysia down to 18. So did that have an impact on the campaign? Yeah, everybody was telling me and other people that this the question of the youth vote was going to be incredibly important in Malaysia because for the first time people in the 18 to 20 bracket were able to vote prior to constitutional reform that took place last year. You had to be 21 in order to vote. In order to get that constitutional amendment through, Parliament had to approve it with a two-thirds majority and that essentially meant that all the major political parties decided to endorse this proposal. I suspect all believing that they could get something out of it. Everybody thought these young voters could be theirs for the asking. So if we think about young voters in terms of other countries in the region, and obviously my own preoccupation and fixation has been in Thailand, where we've seen young voters adopt a much more progressive political stance, much more critical of the military, the monarchy and the establishment than older voters. We might have assumed something similar would happen in Malaysia, but that's really far from being the case. I had a chance to talk to some groups of young people in the Malay heartlands and it was very interesting to have conversations with them about their feelings about Malaysian politics. They were quite quick to say that they were very unhappy with the political choices, they weren't happy with all these older, somewhat discredited politicians associated with previous governments. But then when I asked them, you know, would you vote for a party with a young leader? Would you vote for parties that had people closer to your age, people who'd never been in parliament before? Most of those very same young people who had been extremely critical of the existing situation turned around and said, no, we wouldn't really want to vote for those people. They wouldn't be experienced. So they couldn't get from Proposition 1, there's a problem with the existing politicians, to Proposition 2, we need some new ones. And that wouldn't be the case in Thailand. It wouldn't be the case in many other countries in East and mainland Southeast Asia, where you have seen this sort of milk tea alliance type progressive affinity amongst a lot of younger voters. 
Young Malaysian Voters. I discovered, I'd heard it, but I experienced it for myself in these conversations, are really very conservative compared to young voters in other parts of East and Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. to quite a surprising degree. I see. Yes. And of course, you also wrote a book about the Future Forward Party, the new Thai political party that captured a lot of interest in the mm-hmm. 2019 elections. So can you share a bit more beyond your observations about the young voters? I would like to hear also your thoughts on the Malaysia youth-oriented Muda party as well. Yeah, so I went to Malaysia partly out of curiosity about this party called Muda, which is a youth-oriented party, and I thought there might be some parallels and similarities and overlaps with Future Forward. So that was one of my missions, was to find out about Muda and find out whether you could compare it in some way with Future Forward. So I was fortunate in being able to attend two Muda rallies in Johor and also to interview the party leader, Syed Sadiq, and a number of other key figures in the party, as well as accompany one of the candidates on some campaign activities. And so I got to know a reasonable amount about Muda. Unfortunately, Muda only won one seat in the elections compared to the 81 seats that Future Forward won in 2019. So the scale of the success of the party wasn't really very comparable. And that was a little disappointing. Not totally surprising because they only fielded six candidates. But what Muda did, because of the coalitions that I was just talking about in Malaysian politics, Muda decided they needed to join one of the coalitions in order not to be engaged in direct competition with parties with a similar kind of ideological position. So they joined PH, but not as a full member of that coalition, rather as a party that had an electoral pact with PH. So they were aligned with, but not part of PH. That basically meant they had to negotiate with PH about which seats they would be given. And they ultimately got six seats. But it seemed like most of the six seats that they were given were seats that PH didn't think they themselves had a very good chance of winning. And it turned out that Muda didn't have a terribly good chance of winning them either and didn't win them, except for the one seat they kind of already had, which was the seat of the leader, Said Sadik, in, in Moor, in the, the north of Johor. So that turned out to be a mixed blessing. And some people asked why it was that Muda hadn't kind of gone out on their own and instead of trying to work with other parties they said if you want to vote for us then you know vote for us and forget about all these this different alphabet soup of coalitions but they didn't do that they worked within the system and in that sense had a slightly different brand from future forward which the whole brand of future forward was we're against the system or against all these other parties forget about these other parties let's make a clean break and a fresh start and just come to us and Muda didn't have that kind of very bold message Where Muda has some similarities with Future Forward is it is a leader-centered party. It has what might be called a hyper-leader in Jubado's terms. This is a, a book called The Digital Party that Paolo Jubado published a couple of years ago. Said Sadik is a kind of hyper-leader figure. He's a student debating champion who's incredibly articulate, very charismatic on stage, very good-looking. And it was extremely clear that the party was largely about him, even though... Mm-hmm. 
people in the party didn't want it to be only about him. I went to two rallies and at each rally, when Syed Sadiq arrived at the back of the rally, all attention turned. People averted their eyes from the stage and just turned to see Syed Sadiq's arrival and tried to get selfies and uh, the like from him. So he was very much a kind of a one-man show within the party. And that in some ways was similar to, to Tanaton or Future Forward, but... He hadn't, in the way that Tanatorn did, created some other people as sort of secondary figures around him who were sharing the limelight, or if those people existed, they didn't seem to have risen to the kind of prominence that um, that people like, say, Pierre Banica in, in Future Forward managed to attain. So that was a difference. Although, when I interviewed him, Said Sadik did tell me that, uh, without my mentioning the phrase, that Mudo is a digital party. So, whether he'd read Shibado or not, I'm not quite sure, but he's familiar with that terminology, the idea of a party that really mobilizes people through social media platforms and the like, and, and doesn't necessarily have to have such a good ground game campaign base. Another problem that Muda had, though, is that Future Forward's 81 seats were primarily won, about 50 of them, in a party list system, where small parties that get national interest can win large numbers of seats without having the capacity to win the seats in individual constituencies. So it might have been that Muda, because Syed Sadiq is a nationally popular figure, in a party list system, they might have been able to secure considerably more than one seat, but they weren't able to do that because of the a system really working against them. And that's very much a system that was designed to favour UMNO and to favour large parties and to repel challengers. And in the case of, of Muda Party, that was part of the problem. But I think the really most interesting thing about Muda Party is that when I went to the rallies, I was very struck by the first one in the coastal town of Pontian. There were extremely few young people attending the rally. The people in the first few rows of the rally, and I have photographs to prove this, in the first few rows of the rally were largely older men, primarily of Chinese ethnicity, who were extremely excited about Said Sadiq and extremely excited about the young candidate who was running in their constituency. And it was sort of ironic, the contrast with the young people I'd talked to and their lack of enthusiasm for young political candidates and leaders, whereas these older people were very, very willing to give their votes to young candidates. So there's a strange kind of generational role reversal going on. People might have been mobilized on the basis of their generation but not being mobilized in the way that you would possibly have expected. So it seemed that people, particularly non-Malays, who felt that they hadn't got much out of the political system for many years, they were willing to give newcomers, challengers, maybe someone who just seemed young and smart and lively and interesting, they were willing to give that kind of person a chance in a way that people the same age as the candidates were more reluctant to do because of their conservatism. So that was part of the nuance and complexity of what was going on there, that because I don't have the data to prove that this was a widespread phenomenon, I'm trying to get a bit more information on exactly who voted for the Muda party. But it does kind of seem that older people voted for the party whose name in Malay means young, and fewer young people did. That is very interesting indeed. So now I want to turn to the electoral strategies of supposedly more Islamic conservative party, the uh, PAS. So as we all know, the main opposition coalition, Pakatan Harapan, they got the most votes and its leader, 
Anwar Ibrahim rose to the prime minister position, yet Anwar's party, the PKR, did not obtain the most seats. But it was the Islamic Conservative Party from another coalition, the PAAS party, that won the most seats. So how do you account for the strong performance of PAS in this election? Yeah, I mean, the whole business with the coalitions makes working out who got the most seats incredibly confusing because we've got coalition seat numbers and party seat numbers. But yes, if we drill down to the parties and get beyond the coalitions for a minute, what we find is that the party that got the single largest number of seats in this election was past the Islamic party with 43 seats, although they're not in the government now. They are in the opposition coalition for reasons that would require a little bit of further explanation. And yes, the People's Justice Party, a PKR Anwar's party, only got 31 seats. And then the DAP, which is another key party in Pakistan Harappan that's kind of associated with more oppositional voters of Chinese ethnicity, that got 40 seats. So yeah, the single biggest winner of the election was PASS. And if we look at the map, we see how they achieved very, very solid results in the Malay heartlands. These were areas where they'd been strong before, but they got a lot stronger and managed to take every single seat in some areas like Kelantan, which I was able to visit during my uh, time in Malaysia. That's extremely interesting. You might associate PASS with a certain kind of image of Islamic teachers, ustas, people who have spent most of their lives leading prayers and, and preaching in mosques and running Islamic boarding schools and things like that. Those people certainly are affiliated with PASS, and some of the people who voted for PASS were students who'd come up through that Islamic education system. That is all true. But why did PASS do so particularly well this time was partly because they were able to mobilize their base and even to mobilize some of the young people from the same kind of tradition. But they also quite successfully rebranded themselves. When I visited a, a PASS campaign office in Kedah, there was no PASS logo anywhere in sight. They were campaigning using this PN, this Brigatan National banner, which they shared with Bersatu, the more secular, it's not really a word we would use in Malaysia, but the non-Islamic branded element of PN. They were sharing this identity under the same colors, and that really meant that PASS was presenting itself in a new light. I met a successful candidate in Qadar who'd been the political secretary to the chief minister of Qadar, and he told me that his career had been as a motivational speaker. He didn't look at all like an Islamic cleric. He was extremely articulate, very presentable, and very apparently living in 2022, not at all evoking the image of Pas or as we used to understand it. Then in Kalantan, I, I went to a campaign event where a young female lawyer was the candidate as a local community centre, and I also had a chance to meet the Chief Minister of Trenganu, who has a PhD in aeronautical engineering from the University of Leeds. And all of these people were not what you would think of as traditional past people. And it's quite clear that there's been a concerted attempt to put forward a new image of the party, which is far more accessible to 
Malay voters who would not necessarily define themselves primarily by their Islamic piety. So ironically, over the years, UMNO has become a bit more Islamic in its orientation and PAS has become more Malay and more kind of like UMNO used to be before. So there was a sense really with this whole PN coalition, as I say, that they're sort of UMNO lights, UMNO without the baggage and UMNO without the some of the corruption cases and the problematic issues. And PAS became part of that brand, the UMNO light brand, rather than the kind of brand that it had maybe 20 or 30 years ago as a really hardcore party that was emphasizing Islam at the core of its identity. So now that the Pakatan Harapan coalition has gained control of the Malaysian government twice in a row, the first time after the 2018 election, does this represent a break from Malaysia's authoritarian politics? Can we consider the country to be in a democratic transition? That's a really good question. I guess it's a question that many people who follow Malaysia will be asking themselves now. I mean, Anwar has for decades been presenting himself as a more democratic and reformist alternative, and he's finally become prime minister. The problem, of course, is, you know, who is he in coalition with? Throughout the campaign, PH was really highlighting the problems of UMNO and corruption cases that are associated with key figures in UMNO, and many of those cases focused on particular individuals. And those same individuals are now in the coalition. In fact, one of the most controversial of all is Deputy Prime Minister in this coalition. So it's rather hard for Anwar and PH to present themselves as reformists when they have taken into their government the very same people that they were trying to reform or said they were trying to reform all these years. It's also striking that DAP, which got a very large number of seats in Parliament, 40 seats, hasn't ended up with very many cabinet seats. It's clear that in the negotiations to form a government, they had to surrender some of their seats. And UMNO, which got significantly fewer MPs than DAP, has more and more prominent cabinet positions than DAP does, which, considering that DAP is part of the coalition that quote-unquote won the election and is indeed the largest party in it, is a curious state of affairs. So things are now rather complicated. We would like to think that you could look at a PH-led coalition and see that as some sort of more reformist or more democratic government than Malaysia has had before. A lot of the problems that PH faced, though, during the election were in relation to what happened after GE14 in 2018, when it ended up with Mahathir Mohamed becoming the prime minister instead of Anwar, and PH was only in power for 22 months and then things began to unravel. So a lot of people during the campaign were saying, well, you had this 22 months to prove yourselves and one, you didn't really do enough, which people would debate whether that was true or not. But what was clearly true was that you kind of blew it. You know, we voted you in and you fought amongst yourselves and after 22 months, your coalition unraveled. So this is a bit of a problem that Anwar now faces again. People voted for PH again with high expectations of a certain kind. And those expectations have been rather disappointed because they thought they were voting against UMNO and they've now got uh, more UMNO ministers in the government than DAP ministers, for example. So it's a curious state of affairs. And this has left many Malaysian voters somewhat sceptical. Uh, there's been a lot of 
adverse commentary on the cabinet lineup on social media. So I think it's now an open question as to what's going to happen. Of course, stability was a huge issue during the election. Everybody was talking about stability, claiming that they were going to bring stability. But we know that after the last election, there were no less than two changes of prime minister and then the government didn't run its full term before calling what was in effect an early general election. So a great deal remains to be seen about what is going to happen from here on and whether we can really see this as a more democratic or quote-unquote reformist government. And part of it is going to hinge on the outcome of some court cases that key figures are going to be facing in the near future and whether, in fact, more figures from UMNO go to jail or whether it's possible that some, for example, the former Prime Minister Najib is pardoned and allowed to come out of jail, which has also been a topic of considerable speculation in the run-up to and during the election itself. So for our final question, looking ahead, what do you think are important research avenues in light of this election's outcomes? And maybe you could also share about your own plan. Yeah, I'm still trying to work out what what to do about the things I learned or tried to understand during the time in Malaysia. I'm obviously still interested very much in this question of, of youth voters and what that tells us. We need to drill down and get more data about how younger people and younger voters really exercise their rights during GE15 in Malaysia and what implications that may have and what comparative implications that may have for those of us who've been and hoping that there was some sort of progressive wave of, of youth in Southeast Asia, which clearly hasn't reached the shores of Malaysia quite yet. And then also, what about these, a new party like Muda? Is it possible for a party like Muda to make a breakthrough? Can we make any useful comparison with Future Forward or with other parties? And, you know, what does it mean to be a youth party? Is it a good idea to brand yourself as a youth party, which actually Future Forward never did? and got more support from youth by not saying they were a youth party than uh, Muda seems to have done by saying that they were a youth party. So there are a number of questions there, but I think the bigger question that looms over this, for me, I'm obviously looking forward to what's going to happen in Thailand in the election, which is currently scheduled perhaps for the 7th of May. And, you know, when we go back to the last Thai election in 2019, it was a quasi-referendum do you support the monarchy and the military or do you support more progressive and more democratic forces? Um, if we thought of if we thought of G14 in Malaysia in that way, it was harder to think of G15 in that way because it wasn't really a straight struggle between pro and anti-reformist forces. It turned out that the pro and anti-reformist forces ended up getting together, brokered by monarchy, interestingly, which has another set of parallels with Thailand. So it makes me really wonder at the moment how far the distinction that we could see in the 2019 Thai election between an opposition bloc led by the Thai party and a pro-military bloc led by Palang Bisharat will be sustained going forward because there are all kinds of new parties emerging and all kinds of rumours of collaborations between parties that used to be on opposite sides of the fence. And I am wondering if what we've seen in Malaysia might replicate itself in some form in Thailand with elements of what we thought were the opposition joining forces with elements of what we thought were the, the government conservative side after the election results become known at some point next year. So perhaps 
our assumptions that there are quasi-ideological contestations going on in most Southeast Asian elections based on what's been happening in the, the recent past could be problematized by the Malaysia example. And even when we go forward to Indonesia and what may happen there now that uh, you know, Jokowi seems to be increasingly sympathetic to Prabowo, who we thought was his opponent and is now in his cabinet. So it's spreading this, um, what can we call it, the murkification of uh, quasi-ideological boundaries, the blurring of those apparent boundaries into more and more types of ambiguity. Indeed. Well, thank you so much, Duncan, for taking the time to give us your thoughts on Malaysia's GE15 here on the Nordic Asia podcast. Thank you. I'm Maivan Tran of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and I have been in conversation with Duncan Marcago, the director of NIAS, located at the Department of Political Science in the University of Copenhagen. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.